right. Assuming that you've been reading with us, go ahead and keep your Bibles out. If you don't have them out, go ahead and get them out. We're going to be jumping around the book of Amos in today's sermon. We're going to be finishing the book in chapters 7, 8, and 9. The book of Amos seems like a particularly and uniquely heavy book. You know, you walk through the Gospel of Mark and you have some really low, dark, heavy things there, but you also have some light, uplifting, uh, joyful things. And I'm not saying that there's nothing joyful in the book of Amos, but by and large, the book of Amos is a book about uh, judgment and wrath and sin and unrighteousness and injustice and and how God is set up against these things and how he opposes them and how he's going to destroy those who practice these things. And it's just chapter after chapter. Every week we come back to the book of Amos and we think, okay, maybe this week Sean's going to give us an uplifting sermon. And then we come back to the text and it just doesn't feel natural. Even this morning, I feel the weight of it, right? I, I recognize that it's Christmas time, you know? I get it. Most churches this morning, they're probably doing their Christmas theme sermon, and everybody's probably a little bit more upbeat, but it feels disjointed to, to, to be so upbeat as we finish the book of Amos, and then we see just as the book finishes out, it's still dark. It's still heavy, and I think that's probably good for our souls, you know? Our society doesn't have room for this kind of thing where we have a sustained meditation on the brokenness of this world, where we have a sustained experience of sin and the terrible effects of sin and, and how God feels about sin, not just for one week or not just for five minutes in one week's sermon, but week after week, we're just reminded once again about how bad sin really is. And so here we are this morning, and it seems like in this morning's text, the language of God's judgment ramps up, and it actually gets more, when you thought it couldn't get any more intense, you come to chapter 7, verse 17, and you read this, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up, and you shall die in an unclean land. It gets darker. You can go on to chapter 8, verse 3, and there you see, And the songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Amos apparently didn't get the message that it was time to let off the gas pedal a little bit. Apparently neither did the Lord who inspired the words of Amos. The last three chapters of this book, I've chosen to, to lump them all together because uh, I think we see a thread leading us through each of these three chapters, and that thread is the thread of visions. The last three chapters in the book of Amos are composed of six visions from the Lord. So up until now, the Lord has been uh, leading Amos to prophesy, but now the prophecy is coming to Amos in the form of these visions. The first five visions are visions of judgment. So at the beginning of the sermon, we're just going to kind of walk through these. We're not going to get super in-depth. I just want us to look at them, touch on them, get a basic understanding of what they are and what they signify, and then we'll move on into more of the chapters. So let me pray, and then we'll dive. Father, you are a good father, and we believe that you know what's best for us. 
So, so we pray that you would help us to, to listen to what you have to say, to say to us once again this morning. Help us have eyes that are able to see and ears that are able to hear. Uh, we pray that uh, all, all of your covenant people who are gathered here today this morning uh, would hungry uh, receive more truth from you and to be changed by it so that we can reflect your glory in this dark and fallen world. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So the first vision is the locust worm, chapter 7, verse 2. Or we start in verse 1. This is what the, what the Lord showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. Behold, it was the latter growth after king's mowings. And when they had finished eating the grass land, I said, O oh Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. Now, earlier, back in chapter 4, we looked at uh, the image of, of locusts and, and how destructive they can be. They, they come in the tens of millions, sometimes even hundreds of millions. They can be 40 miles across a swarm of locusts, and they come through, through and they just really decimate uh, whatever area that they cross, cross through. They eat all the crops, not only to eat the crops, they really eat anything that's, that's bioavailable. They'll eat leather, they'll eat clothing, they'll, they'll eat paper. Anything that, that they can get their little jaws on, they will, will eat it. And so the Lord here is picturing this future judgment that, that's going to come on Samaria as a swarm of locusts. That's what, what this swarm is supposed to signify, the very intense, very severe judgment of the Lord. Okay. Now what you see in verse 3 here is, well actually in verse 2 is that Jacob, his vision, as he's receiving this vision, he cries to God and he says, no God, look at your people, you know that they can't stand this. And this is marked contrast to last week. We saw in last week's sermon that the people of Israel thought of themselves as bigger and better and more prominent than they actually were. Right? And so here we see that Amos actually has a pretty good understanding of who Samaria is. He says, listen, Lord, they're small. They're not big. They're weak. They're not strong. They're not able to tolerate your wrath if you do what you say you're going to do here in the vision. And so in this vision, the Lord responds in verse 3. And it says, the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, says the Lord. Fantastic. Vision number two, the vision of fire. Right, you can see it in verse four. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating of the land. So this is just another vision of judgment, just like locust swarms would come through and utterly destroy a, a land, so too fire could come through and utterly destroy. You know, they say that, uh, I'm rereading Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, and one of the things that the, the fire chief says is, the, the fire burns hot, the fire burns clean. And what he means when he says the fire burns clean is that it leaves nothing behind, Right? And that's the same thing that's true with the locusts. Locusts come through and they don't leave anything behind. And the fire comes through and it doesn't leave anything behind. And then, and then in verse 5, we see the same refrain from Jacob. He's terrified to think what this will do. He says, oh, Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? Once again, saying they're not strong enough. He is so small. And again, in verse 6, the Lord, the Lord relent concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. Twice, vision concerning judgment. Twice, Amos 
to bat for the people of Israel who absolutely don't deserve it. And in, and in the vision, the Lord responds and says, yeah, you're right. I'm not going to do it. The third vision, the vision of the plumb line, down in verse 7. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with, with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And he said, Behold, I am, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of, of my people Israel. I will never again pass, pass by them. Uh, if you're like me and, and you don't know what to do with your hands, you know, you don't, you don't know how to change, change oil, you need help fixing a flat tire on your wife, wife's van, not, not to be too specific, uh, you probably didn't know what a plumb line was. I had to do a little bit of Googling, but then I found out because I actually saw people using this when I lived in the jungles. Uh, Peru, uh, a plumb line, and I think they, they still use them today, just in a more advanced version, right? But it's, you build a wall, and, and you want to know that it's upright, so you take a piece of string or a cord or whatever, you put a weight or a stone that's something that acts, acts like a weight at the end of it, and as gravity, avity, 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 Acti, 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 on that string and it hangs, it's going to hang perfectly straight down. Now what you do is you use that to build your, your wall. Help me out here if I'm wrong. You use that to build your wall and to make sure that your, that your wall is completely straight and not crooked. As you can imagine, without something like that, there'd be a lot of frustrated builders building, uh, you know, the towers of pizza. Anyways, okay. So the Lord says that not, not only is he standing, not only does he have a plumb line, but he's standing beside a wall that was built with a plumb line. Now here's vision of judgment. Israel is envisioned as the wall. And the plumb line is the, the, the law of God. And the Lord God, when he built the people of Israel, he built them with his own plumb line, with the law. He made sure that as he built the house of Israel, that he built it perfectly upright and straight. Nevertheless, as he stands on the wall now, once again with his plumb line drawn, it's obvious that the wall has become crooked. And so we see in verse 9, excuse me, verse 8, he says, Behold, I am plumb line, and in the midst of my people Israel, I will never again pass by, by them. Now this language of uh, never passing by, 
This is a language that's drawn from the Exodus event. I'm sure you remember, remember when the Lord God was sending plagues on, on Pharaoh and, and, Egypt, and Egypt. The final plague was he was going to come and destroy the firstborn of each household. And the only, only way that a household could be safe from this fi- final act of judgment of God was to put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Right? You remember the story, right? And, and if blood was there, the angel passed by. The, the wrath would be doled out on that household. And what the Lord God is saying here is he's saying, listen, my covenant people, I have passed by your house on a number of different occasions. I have not given you that which you so richly deserve, which is my wrath. I have not disciplined you as you deserve to be disciplined. But he says, now, now the plumb line is drawn and I see that I have to give you what you deserve. I think what we see in these first three visions is a drama of the Lord interacting with his, his people played out in visions, right? The Lord has come to his people. He, he's rebuked them. He's disciplined them. They responded one way or another and then given them time to lint and to change, and they do, and then he come, comes back in and it's this big cycle where he doesn't punish. He gives grace. But now, now this third vision of the plumb line, it's, it's God saying, the time is coming where I have to do what I have to do. You see this language in two different places. You can see not only what we looked at in chapter 7, verse 8, also in chapter 8, verse 2. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of some fruit. Now this is the next vision, the vision of over fruit, the vision of the summer fruit. Now, if you don't know what summer fruit is, it's okay because uh, you're, you don't follow all of the ancient Israelite agricultural calendar. But you, but you should know that ancient Israelites did have an agricultural calendar. This was because they were in an agricultural society. This is one of the main ways that they th- thought about time. They thought about it in terms of planting and harvesting. So as I walk you through it, notice what happens. Mid-September to November, there's an olive harvest. November to mid-January, there's planting of wheat and barley. End of January to March, you plant your chickpeas, melons, and cucumbers. End of March to end of April, you plant your flax. April, April May was now beginning a harvest. So the barley that you planted back in November, now you begin to harvest that bar- barley. May to June, a little after that, you harvest the wheat. In June to, to July, you have your grape harvest. And then finally, the la- last month of the year... Uh, of the agricultural calendar, it was in August, that was when you would ha- have your harvest of the summer fruits. So what God is saying is, I've been through the cycle of you. Your seeds of injustice and righteousness were planted a long time ago, and now I'm coming to harvest righteousness. You're at the end of the cycle. Vision number five. The final vision of judgment. Skip ahead to chapter 9, verse 1. He sees the Lord standing beside the other and he said, Strike the capitals. And the cap- capitals are like the, you know, the beams, the, the columns. Strike the, ca- the capital of the threshold sh- and shatter them on the heads of all the, all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with a sword. None of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. 
This is vision of the temple being destroyed. Do you remember how uh, the north and the south were at one time one kingdom? And then there was a division of the kingdom, and the temple was in the south. And so the kings of, of the north, being uh, as clever as they were, as politically as astute as they, as they were, they, they, they looked down and they said, huh, I bet you if we let, let them go down to the south, to Judah, to worship at the temple down there, they're prob- probably just going to hang out down, down there. They're develop relationships down there. Their allegiance will be down there. And that's really good for us here in the north. So what we're going to do is we're going to build our own temples. So they built one main temple in the north in Bethel, and they built another temple uh, kind of the, the ancillary temple, a little higher in the north in Dan. But Bethel was sort of the main temple in the north after this split between the kingdoms. And what we, we've seen so far in the book of Amos is that this, this temple north has been, been epicenter of all of the injustices in the land. It seems like the priests are in on it. They're not teaching the people the law of God as they ought to be. And the people are feeling totally comfortable sending Monday through Saturday and then coming to the temple on Sunday, not technically on Sunday, but you get what I'm saying, coming to the temple to offer worship and sacrifice. And it, it almost seems like the temple has become a tool of their unrighteousness. The temple has come to be a symbol that signifies their hypocrisy, their rebellion, their injustice. And so here in this final vision of judgment, the Lord is enacting a certain amount of, of not sarcasm, um, what's, the, what's the word? Um, this is what I get not going on manuscript. Uh, irony, yeah, yeah, it is, right? The irony is that the people are about, about to die as the Lord crushes this temple by the, by the very thing that has been what they wrongfully trust in, right? People will be destroyed by the inventions of their own fallen religion. They will be destroyed by the that they tried to use to manipulate God. They will be destroyed at the epicenter of their own injustice. And then anybody else who isn't destroyed by the, by the temple, the Lord will be killed by the sword. And his point here is simple. simple. Uh, just nobody can escape. Because when, because when God brings his justice, it is complete. And it is final. And it is comprehensive. And that's a big picture of the last three chapters. Chapter. One of the reasons why we're sort of looking at that string is because, because almost the rest, rest of the, the content of chapter 79 is basically what we've seen all the way through the book of Amos. The Lord says, hey, you're, you're guilty of this, and because of that, I'm going to do this. I'm going to punish you, so on and forth. But there is a little bit more that I want, want us to see here before we uh, wrap the, our time in Amos up, up together. So go back to chapter 7, verse 10. 10. Here we read about Amaziah the priest. It just calls him a priest, but I'm assuming based off of the interactions that he has with the king, and I'm also assuming based off of the way that he interacts with Amos as a sort of official representative of the temple north, that he's not just any priest, he's probably the high priest, okay? In verse 10, it's, Then Amaziah the priest, or the high priest of Bethel, and remember that the temple in the north at Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, that's the king of the north, the north okay, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all her words, for thus Amos said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his, his land. Now, in the Old Testament, there were three offices. There was the prophet, the priest, and the king. 
And what we see here happening in the book of Amos is very interesting. The priest and the king are about to set up shop and take a stand against the prophet. Two of the offices of the Lord are about to oppose the, the other office of the Lord, of the Lord. And we can read of that as, as we continue. Verse 12, And Amaziah said, said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah, and eat, eat bread there, and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. I don't know if, because uh, the text doesn't tell us, I don't know if Jeroboam specifically told Amaziah, go back, and you tell that prophet, you tell Amos to go back where he came from. I don't know if the king said that or what, but either way, Amaziah, acting on behalf of the king, felt comfortable going back to Amos and saying, we don't want you here anymore. Go back to where you came from. Now, what you need to know about Amaziah is that he was specifically appointed by Jeroboam to the king in the north. That's not the way it's supposed to work. Priests are not supposed to be appointed by kings. I was recently having a, a meeting with a guy who's doing a documentary on the prosperity gospel in Africa. And he was telling me about his church down in South Alabama and about they're trying to find a new pastor. And I asked how it was going. And he was like, yeah, like, yeah the pastoral search committee is, I think, doing a good job. And I said, uh, and, uh, and who does that consist of? And they were like, like, well, a couple deacons, a couple of members. And I, and I said, well, any elders or other pastors on that search committee? No, 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 no. Not the way it's supposed to work. Elders are supposed to look for other elders, okay? And in the same way, uh, uh, it's the king's job to appoint a priest. That's not the way it works according to the law of, law of God. But nevertheless, because of division and disunity and sin, that, that is what is in place. And so the king has appointed Amaziah. And because he is now a political appointee, he is acting more like a government agent than an ambassador of God. It's obvious that Amaziah's greatest allegiance is, is not to God, but to the king, because you don't put hand that feeds you. Now, what you see happening here is that Amaziah latches on to, to one particular implication of what Amos has said and ran with it to the king. He doesn't go to the king and say, king, you know, Amos is saying that we're spiritually all jacked up, that we're, we're, that we're idolatrous, we're worshiping false gods, and because of that we've become unrighteous, and we're practicing injustice, and we're corrupting the temple, and we're, we're abandoning the of God, and we're being the priests of the nations that we're supposed to be. God loves us, and he's calling us back to himself, and he's saying, saying he's going to come discipline us if we don't repent. So, you know, you know, what should we do here, king? He's not saying that. What he's doing is he's going, going to the king and he recognizes that there are certain political implications of what Amos said. Namely, that everyone in the land needs to repent, including, including the king. And so he takes that as a threat to the king and he goes and, says, and he tells the king, King, there's somebody here who's threatening your lordship. There's somebody here threatening your rule and your reign. Couldn't see the spiritual nature of what Amos was saying. To hear Amaziah tell it, Amos was just a political revolutionary from Judah, not a prophet from God. You know, the same thing happened to Jesus, right? Jesus did not come as a chaplain of the empire. Jesus did not come as a political activist. Jesus came, and from the very first day of his ministry until the very last breath he breathed on the cross, he was here as an agent of heaven. He preached repentance and faith. He was calling men and women back to the Father. But nobody understood. You know, 
The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees thought that he was trying to undo their political regime. Those who were loyal to Herod thought that he was trying to undo Herod's rule and reign. The Romans thought the same thing of the early Christians. They understood that the radical spiritual message of Christianity was in some way an assault on the empire. Now, they just didn't understand in which, which way. They thought that the, the Christians might band together and try to take over the, 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 the whole Roman world. And, and, and in fact, they did take over the Roman world, but not in the kind of way that, that they, they were expecting. Because of that, they were persecuted. And the same thing may, may be true of us. As we oppose evil, people might understand us to be primarily political actors. They may miss the spiritual implications of what we say, say and do as Christians, and they may only see us for the political ramifications of what we say. Because the truth is that in the fallen world, we do stand up against anything that is evil, including governments that uphold, protect, and re- regulate evil. But that's not our primary mission. That's not, that's not the main thing that we're here to do. The main thing that we're here to do is to call men everywhere to, to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and to obey him. Nevertheless, there will be certain political implications of that. Okay, back to Amaziah. Amaziah didn't give any spiritual content of Amos' prophecy to the king. Look at verse 12. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, go flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there, there and prophesy there. Never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is a king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. What you see here is that Amaziah is in some way, some way trying to legitimize this temple, this practice. He's saying this is a legitimate temple in our, our kingdom. And he's saying, don't come here and assault us with your truth. We don't want to hear a word from the Lord from you. Go back to where you came from. Friends, you should know that this is a very normal thing throughout the story of redemption. This is not unique to Amos. As you read the entire Bible, time and time again, what you will find, without a doubt, is that when God sends someone to tell the truth to his people, that person is often rejected and hated for doing what God has called them to do. Right? Now, at this point, I think the temptation would make a delineation and application and say something like, yeah, when we take the gospel to the world, the world will hate us. But I don't think that that's what's happening here. Amos is taking the truth of God to the people of God, and they hate him for it. They say, we don't want the word of God. We don't want to hear what you have to say. Now, part of the reason that that's happening is because of the way that the Old, old Covenant was built. The old Covenant was consistent of God, God's political, ethnic, and spiritual people. It was, it was that way by design. So what that means is that under the Old Covenant, there were a lot of unregenerate people in the, in the Covenant. A lot of regenerate people, unregenerate people. Paul knows that. That's, that's what he says in Romans 9, 9. Uh, that not all of Israel is Israel. What he's saying is not everyone who's in, in the covenant is actually of the covenant. Not everyone who's a child of Abraham is actually a child of Abraham because they don't have the same faith that, that Abraham had. Now, 
see this idea trotted out a little bit more in chapter 9. Turn there, there with me. Chapter 9, verse 9. Speaking to Amos, the Lord says, For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. The sinners of my people shall die by the sword. So, so, so uh, here the Lord is using a picture of a sieve to talk about, about what's happened to this people. If you've ever seen a sieve before? It can be square, it can be round, it doesn't matter. It's usually got kind of wire mesh. Uh, in olden, olden days, it, it wasn't wire, obviously, but there's some kind of mesh. And so, like, in, in, in a society like this, you would scoop the wheat in there, okay? And then you would have a, a clean pile, so dirty pile, fresh from the field, dumped right, right there, clean pile here. You'd shovel it in the sieve, you shake the sieve out, and the mesh is supposed to catch any rocks or debris that doesn't, doesn't go in the wheat so that, that you don't have pebbles in your bread, okay? And you sh- shake it, and the pebbles stay in the sieve, and all the wheat falls out down at the bo- bottom without any impurities, okay? I saw the same thing in Peru. When we would have to, have to make concrete, we would get sand, and the way that we got sand in the middle of the jungle is they would go to the, the river, river bed, and they would scoop uh, mud out of the river bed, they would let it die and bake it in the sun, and then when it was dry, they would put it into a sieve, and they would, they would shake it out, sand would come out, and the sieve was pretty fine, and any rocks or pebbles there, they would stay up in the sieve, and that's how you got clean sand. Now, now uh, what God is say- saying here is that his j- judgment is a sieve. And what, and what he's saying is he's about to pass his people through the sieve of his judgment. And he's saying that his sieve will catch all unregenerate people in his covenant. They will judge. And you see that language specifically. Go back to the text. Look at verse 10. He says, All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. All the sinners of my people you see, you see here, he's making a very careful distinction. He's saying that within the covenant community of his people, there are some who are righteous. Not We understand Romans 3, there is no one righteous, no, not one. But you have to understand that the Bible has, has layers of complexity in the ways, the ways that it uses words sometimes. Okay, what he's saying is that those who practice sin, sin, who live perpetually in sin, who don't care to repent and turn away from their, their sin...
Though members of the covenant community will be caught up in, up in God's perfect discerning judgment like rocks get caught in a sniff. Now what about us in the new covenant? The new, the new covenant consists of only those who are regenerate. That makes the, the new covenant new and distinct from the old. The old covenant, one neighbor would go to the other neighbor and say, Know the Lord. And they had to do that because not everyone in the covenant knew the Lord. But in, but in the new covenant, there's not anyone who has not repented of their sins and, and trusted in, in Jesus Christ. But, here, but here's a, a little tricky. The new covenant people of God, when we get together here on this physical earth, we do so as a church, a visible expression of the new covenant. But, but we are an imperfect, visible expression of the new covenant. In the life of this church, before you join this, we have a, members, uh, a membership interview. We sit down with you. We get to hear your story. Hopefully you've been at our church for a while. We get to see a little bit of your life. We get to hear your understanding of the gospel, whether or not you're living in the gospel. And we do our best to try to discern whether or not you really, really do belong to Jesus Christ. And then, and then if you're baptized, you join. If you're not baptized, you get baptized, and then you join. And then you're part of covenant community. But you see the, the, the problem with that, right? The problem is, is that it, it's still a bunch of other imperfect sinners who are trying to evaluate whether or not you really and truly are a Christian or not. And we can't do that perfectly. And that's why God gives us church discipline so that when we receive members into the visible covenant community of God who aren't actually members of God's covenant community, we put you, put you out of covenant fellowship. Okay, now it seems like I'm rambling, but I'm, I'm going, so stay with me. The reason why I want us, want us to know that that what we see here in the church is not a perfect expression of the reality of the covenant people of God is because I think that this means that we will experience what Amos has experienced in the text. That is to say that as we communicate God's truth to God's people, we can expect some of them don't truly belong to the Lord and they will hate us for telling them the truth. Does that make sense? Now, this could be on, in another different way. It can happen in one to, one to, to another ministry in the life church. We understand that one of the main thing, things that we're called to as church members is to speak the truth to one another in love, right? right? That's your number one ministry. If, if you joined the church and I did your membership interview, and you said, well, how can I serve? I said, well, the main job that you have as a Christian in this church is to speak the truth love, speak the truth in love to one another. That is your job. Well, you may find... That as you try to, try to do that, brother or sister in Christ, you know, you, you need to encourage them. Maybe they receive that, but maybe you, you need to rebuke them and they don't receive that at all and they end up hating you for, for it. This can also happen with church leaders. Uh, Will, some direct application to you, brother, and I guess a little bit beyond Will, any man who, who desires to be an elder or who is serving as an elder, you need to know, to know this. As you shepherd God's people, you need to know that some of them will despise you for doing your job. So if you're in this church and you think, man, I see those guys being shepherds and it looks so great and you know, the people respect them. Well, not always. Sometimes the sheep bite you. Sometimes the sheep are sheep at all. They're just goats or wolves. Disguise the sheep. The other day I heard a, heard a guy joking say that he hates mirrors. They, they give him an accurate vision of himself, right? 
You look in the mirror and you go, ah, oh, that's really what I look like? I like the mirror at the gym. You know, the lighting is just perfect. It's got a little bit of a fun house effect, but in the good way that makes my waist smaller, my shoulders larger, my jaw more defined. You know, it's, I like that, that mirror. And I think we all know what I'm talking about. I got a mirror that I like. You know, I'm like, yeah, yeah that's a good mirror. Well, this guy was yeah, I don't like mirrors that give me an accurate representation of myself. And, and brothers, if you want to be a pastor, you need to know that what you are supposed to do is hold the mirror of God's law up before the eyes of God's people and show them exactly who they are. And they may hate you for that. They may tell you to go back to where you're from. They may say that we can't take that. And they may do this in a number of different ways. It's not going to come right out and say, go back to where you came from, Bell City, Alabama. No. What they might do is try to, try to make you feel like a hypocrite for trying to call them to a standard of holiness, even though you yourself are a sinner. As if no one can call anyone else to God's standard of holiness unless they themselves have arrived at a, at a perfect level of holiness. They might try, try to use political tactics in the life of the church to silence your truth-telling. You ever heard about a group of deacons coming together to stand up against a pastor who's preaching the truth and get him fired? Like Amos, you may have your words twisted in order to slander your ministry. They might say that you're saying things that you're not, not saying at all, and it doesn't, doesn't matter because they don't care about whether or not they're representing you accurately. All they care about is get you out the front door because their conscience can't take your preaching and teaching and shepherding anymore. A fairly common attack, they might adopt nasty attitudes towards you, not giving you the respect that you deserve as their shepherd in the Lord. They might try to humble you and keep you in your place in the life of the church. So that eventually, you just get so frustrated with the people in the church, you just can't take it and you move on. They might try to starve you out by not tithing so that you have no choice but to go find another way to feed your family. This was the tactic of some of the people in the church that George Mueller was pastor. They just stopped giving. Hopefully... He would give up and go, but he was stubborn. And he stuck around, and it worked out. But that's for another, another day. Or, or they might just write fire you. They might call you in the office, say, yeah, we, we thank you for being here, but uh, we believe what you believe, and we don't want you around. Uh, we're going to give you a, a month-long severance, or we're going to give you a couple of weeks to figure it all out, and then you, you can go. I say this as a pastor of a, of a church where none of these things are, are happening, and if any of them, them have had, not really happening anymore. And so, yeah, it's easy for me to stand up and say to you this morning, I don't feel any tension talking about that in the life of our church. But Will, brother, you may not stay at 6th Avenue Community Church of God forever. If I have my way, you will never leave this cold. But, really, I mean, the goal with Will Stevenson is to train him up and maybe the Lord would willingly send him out to go pastor his own church. Maybe do a church revitalization, maybe do a church plant. But brother, you should know that it could be, be that you and Jackie end up at a, at a church where you think you're going to lead these people and you're going to love these people and you're going to be a good to them and then they will hate you. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, you can do the best, best job in the world. Elders in this church, men, men who want to be elders in the life of this church, I just hope you understand that, that being an elder is meeting up to talk about budgets and, and how, how, how we're going to pass out tracts or, or, or nurse stuff. Being an elder means that you sit down and you have very, very hard conversations with people sometimes. And then every Sunday after that, they may sit and burn a hole through you in the life of this church because they do not like you.
I need you to know that this is not some way out there thing. This is something that happened all the time with, with God's people. It happened to Jesus. In John chapter 8, verse 40, Jesus says this about Jews. But now you seek to kill me, man who has told you the truth. Listen to Paul ask rhetorically in Galatians 4. He says, have I now become your, your enemy telling you the truth? And the reason why he's asking that is because he obviously assumes that the people are going to treat him like an enemy for telling them the truth. Listen to what Jesus said about the covenant people of God during his own ministry. He says, I know you are Abraham's descendants, but you are try- trying to kill me because my word has no place in you. For a member of this church, you, sh- you should know that if you, you try to speak God's word to someone who professes to belong to, to God's kingdom, they hate you for it. It may be, now maybe may be because you're being a jerk. Okay, so how about don't be a jerk, right? How about you say it with, with some humility and some grace and some love, but assuming you're doing all that right, they may hate you for it. And the reason why may be because they're really, they're really not Jesus' disciples at all. It may be because Jesus' words really have no place in them. Uh, you should know that the first conversation that I, that I had with Grant about coming pastor of the church, it didn't really go very well. Not that Grant and I, the conversation didn't go well between us, but, you know, when we were talk- talking about it, uh, just as I was looking at the church from a distance, I, I saw things that just didn't seem like they were in line with the, 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 church, the Bible, and I was super hesitant to, to go pastor a church, church that seemed like it had a couple of things that needed to be, some, some pretty big things. But, but something really amazing began to happen as I formed a relationship and then as I, I became a guest preacher and then I got to know my, Michael a little bit and I started to see something happening from a distance. And what I saw was that this church seemed to be supple God's word. It, it, it seemed to me that Grant was leading this church in, and a lot of times not saying anything, anything from the Bible, but, but sometimes some very hard things from the Bible, as, as he did faithfully, it seemed like the church was, was slowly responding. Like there, there was genuine re- repentance. There was a genuinely positive response to God's word. It wasn't smooth, but at least from a distance, uh, I, could, I could see something pretty special. And the more of that I saw, the more com- compelled I was to reconsider the possibility of coming here to pastor. Which is, is kind of crazy because, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you guys know this, but this is a pretty weird church. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we, I mean we're in an old building. When you come and walk in the front door this morning, I hope you didn't trip on the wood, the wood paneling floor that's coming up because the roof is leaking. You know, I, I hope it likes the, the blue carpet and big stain on the back wall. You know, we, we less than 50 people on any given Sunday. And you know what? I, saw that. I love how weird we are. So but you should recognize that we are weird. And the weirdness didn't stop me, you know? It didn't stop me because I saw something more important than the weirdness. I saw something at a heart level. Weirdness. Oh, Miss Janice. Weird she could be. It couldn't stop, stop coming here. Okay, all right. Yes, yes, ma'am. I saw something special. I saw something worth a big risk. I saw something worth investing my life in. And you know, you know what? I think that's true for a lot of you who are here this morning. You came to this church and you didn't see anything particularly special. You know, you probably had a hard time finding the nursery. You saw that we just locked in a room with a bowl of kibble. 
Pray that, that nobody gets electrocuted or gets, gets an eye poke out. You saw a young first-time first pastor. You, know, you saw blue carpet. You didn't see anything special happening musically. But you saw something better than that. You saw people who love God, who love his word, and who love each other. And you said, you know what? I don't really, I don't really know what's going on here. But whatever this is, I want to invent and invest. I want to be a part of it. I think it's worth the risk. And some of you took some pr- pretty big risks to be here. Some very big risks. And I am so encouraged to be your pastor. Because as I look around this morning, I'm literally full of joy to know that this church responds so positively to God's word. We don't do it perfectly, you know? And I'm not saying that my life as a pastor is always always easy. Man, when you look at the the way the people of Israel respond to the words of the Lord coming through Amos, the way way that they hated him for it, and I look around at the people of this church and the way I, the way I give you the word every week and it seems like the more of God's word I give you, the more, the more you grow, the more you thrive and the more you find joy in the Lord and the more relationships are built. I, I just can't believe it. I'm amazed that God, God's word really does do the work in the life of the church. And I, I can speak for granted myself when I say that we can, we can easily identify with Amos in verses 14 and 15. Uh, go, go, go back to, to uh, chapter 7. Verses 14 and 15. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was as a herdsman, a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. I didn't have plans to be here. My plan was to, to go pastor at a church in Virginia and then be sent out from that church to go plant, plant a church somewhere. Grant not have plans to become the interim pastor. And, and the, the, do, I mean, we, didn't, we weren't thinking about a church revitalization. Grant, Grant was busy doing the North Alabama version of Amos. Amos was seeing sycamore trees and being a shepherd, and Grant was being a radar technologist at uh, Dianetics. And... But, but the, the, look what the Lord did. He had different, better plans for us, and he called us here. And it's been very good. So, brothers and sisters, I also want to tell you that it's, it's not just good for, for my soul that you respond so well to the word of the Lord. It's, it's good for your own soul. It is for your benefit that whether I or Grant or Michael or another person stands at the pulpit and says hard things to you, from word, when you respond positive to that, it's not primarily for me and my benefit, it's for you and your benefit, because you see over again how bad it goes for people when they reject God's word. Look at verse 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, and we read this earlier, it's very, very harsh language, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You, you, you yourself die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its, from its land. What we see here is God is telling his people, listen, listen, because you have rejected my word, things are going to be as bad for you as they can possibly be. Your family is going to fall apart in the worst possible ways. You'll lose your land, which, which I think just means you're going to, all the physical possessions that you've worked so hard for, the things, things that you care so much about, you're going to lose all that. And then at the end, you're going to go, go into exile. 
for, God, for God's people. Not only will your life just suck in a number of different ways here on earth if you don't listen to God's word, but then in the end you will go into to eternal exile. And it will be all the worse for you because as God's covenant, you sat here under life-giving reign of God's word. You were fed and watered week after week after week. You heard God's truth. You heard God's gospel. There is no excuse. And then you will die and you will face God and he will say, why didn't you listen? And you'll say, I didn't know. And he'll say, yes, you did. I saw you week after week listening to my word, and yet you still did not listen and obey. So it is for your good that you listen to the word of God and respond positively. Now, in a few, few minutes, we're going to sing, Speak, O Lord, our final, our final song for this morning. And I, I don't know if you guys know this, but the songs we sing on a Sunday morning, they're not by accident. We try to look at the text, study the text, see what God is trying to communicate to us through his text, and then we pick songs that hopefully reinforce those themes so that we're learning the same, the same truth through scripture reading, sermons, as we sing together, as, as we pray together, we're learning the same truth, layer, 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 layer. And I just thought there's no better way for us to respond to the word through songs and speak, O Lord. A song that's about a, a people who are desirous of hearing the word of God, who want to hear, to hear God speak. Now, at the beginning of the sermon, I told you that, that there were six visions, and then I gave you five, five visions of, of wrath. Well, there's one vision remaining, and it cut the very tail end of the book. Look at chapter 9, verses 11, 15. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that, that has fallen and repair its breach and raise up its ruins and, and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plan shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall sweet wine and all the hills shall, shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat the fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Finally, we arrive at mercy. Finally, we arrive at God's sweet promise of grace. Up until now, as we've been working through Amos, we've still seen grace and mercy, but it's always seemed like it's in the past tense, right? God is saying, like, listen, I've given you chance after chance after chance, and you didn't listen to me. You know, like a, a boss who's telling his employees, and I tried and tried and tried to work with you, but, but, but you got to go. Or, or a parent who's talking to their child and saying, listen, I gave, gave you umpteen chances, and you apparently just want a spanking because you're listening to me. That's a lot of God's mercy and grace throughout the book of, book of Amos. Like, hey, listen, I've tried to be patient with you and I've tried to give you a chance to repent and, to rest, and even now I'm giving you a chance. But, but now grace comes to us in a future promise. And notice that this future promise of grace does, does not eliminate God's promise discipline. The discipline is gonna happen. 
Assyria came and utterly wiped out the ten tribes of the north, carried them off into the, into the far part of the earth. But there was a remnant. And God promised to restore that remnant. And the image that he uses to talk about that restoration is that of the, 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 the booth of David. Uh, a booth, is, just think about like a tent, okay? okay that's the, the, the tent. And this stands in contrast to the temple, right? There's a temple that's in Bethel. There's a big, mighty, glorious t- temple and it's built with stone and wood and it's got these columns and, and all of that is just worthless. God says when he rebuilds, he's going to rebuild the tent, which on the outside may not look much, but it's really everything. Throughout the book of Amos, we've been studying the day of the Lord, Right? day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. It's just this dreadful thing. It's this, this day, day of impending doom. You remember back, God says, the, the day of the Lord will not be left for you. It will be darkness. The day of the Lord is when God will come to establish perfect justice. And everyone who is on the wrong side of God's plumb line will find the day of the Lord to be a day, day of darkness. But here at the end of, end of Amos, we see the day of the Lord in a much different light. We see it as a day of light. You just see over and over again in verse 11 and verse 13, it says, on that day, and then you've been paying attention to the book of Amos, on that day, you're like nervous, you're like, okay, more judgment. Completely different, he says, on that day, I will raise up the booth of David's fallen. I'm going to fix what is broken. Go Go down to verse 13. Behold, days are coming, and we're thinking, no, no, no Lord, more dread talk. We can't take it. But then he says, when the, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. What God is saying here is, is listen, there's going to be so much fruitfulness in the land, so much productivity, that as soon as the harvester comes through, there's going to be somebody right behind him planting seeds. The land won't, won't need the fallow. Because when I fix everything, it's going to be so, so good. It's just going to be so bountiful. The harvest is going to be so abundant. The hills are going to drip with wine and flow with it. The fords of Israel will be, be restored. Everything will be maybe made new. In Acts 15, the early church was trying to, to figure out uh, what to, to do with all these Gentiles who were coming to the church. Right? The Gentiles were being, being saved, and they were like, like, huh? And part of that's because they didn't really know how to read their Old Testament. You know, Jesus came taught them. But one of the, one of the things that James says in Acts 15, as, as the apostles are trying to help the church think about what to do with these Gentiles coming into the church, these non-Jews, points back to the famous. And he quotes these very verses. And he talks about nations being ingathered. On that day, he says, the day has arrived. The, na- the nations are coming. We are now in the last days. The last days began when Jesus came to the earth on Christmas. They're inaugurated when Jesus was resurrected. From the- and they will be finally and fully consummated one day when Jesus comes back to take home. Now, the end of this brings us to an interesting tension. And the tension that you always feel the gospel. How, how is it possible that God can be both just and, and justifier? How is it possible that in the same per- person can exist the will and ability to bring about utter destruct- 
destruction and ruin on a people and at the same time offer them mercy and grace? How can he absolutely bring destruction to pass and bring restoration? Right? That's a tension, it's a conflict that we feel in our souls. And the answer, friends, is found in the of Jesus Christ. Uh, some of you know that I have, have tattoos. Uh, some of them are complete waste, like the tattoo on my forearm com- commemorating the death of my, my great-grandmother with the wrong date. Not the date passing at all. Some of you know that, uh, so, excuse, me, excuse me, some of the other tattoos are quite, quite significant. I got them. I probably wouldn't get them today, but I got them as a young Christian to signify uh, certain uh, paradigm shifts that I had or certain epiphanies that, re- that really changed who I was as a Christian. And one of them is on my right shoulder, and there's a cross. And, and on one side of the cross, there's dark storm clouds. And on the, on the other side of the cross, you have a bright sun shining its rays down. And I got that because what you see is that in the cross, both the wrath of God and the grace of God are reconciled. How, how can it be that God can punish sinners and yet still be a God of mercy? Well, it's because Christ came down and took our sins onto his sh- shoulders. He took God's wrath that we rightly deserve. And because he did that, he now offers up fullness of God's grace to us who, who repent and believe. And so there's no contradiction. There, there is a tension, but there is no contradiction. And that offer is made, is made freely to everyone, including everyone here this morning. But you cannot partake of that, that sweetness and grace unless you do your sin and turn away from the things that brought the need for God's, God's wrath in the first place. It's often said that Christmas is all about Easter, and I think that that's absolutely true. You have to remember that the reason why Jesus came down as a babe in the manger is so that he could die for us as our, our Savior on the cross. It's a strange thing the way God works sometimes. You think about the way plants grow. A living seed is put in earth and covered. Then that seed dies. But out of its death comes new life. In the same way, Father sent his son and he came down to us like a baby in the manger. And then he died. But then from his death came newness of life. Life is available to anyone, to everyone who will turn away from death and sin and destruction. Let's pray. Lord, you have spoken to us. And we pray that you would help us to really listen as you continue to speak to us, your people. In the days and weeks and months and years ahead, Lord, there will be many opportunities for us to, to be uh, angry or upset with you because of your word, to reject your, your word, we pray that you will hold us fast, that you, that you will keep our eyes open, that you will keep our ears uh, ready and willing, willing to listen, that you will finally and fully save us. Come on, Lord Jesus. Amen. Please stand as we sing there. <clears throat>